Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is California-born Jennifer Lang, who lives in Tel Aviv, where she runs Israel Writers Studio. Her essays have appeared in the Baltimore Review, Crab Orchard Review, Under the Sun, Consequence, and elsewhere. A Pushcart Prize and Best American Essays nominee, she holds an MFA from Vermont College of Fine Arts and serves as assistant editor for Brevity Journal. When not at her desk, she's often on a yoga mat, practicing since 1995, teaching since 2003. Places We Left Behind is her memoir in miniature. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much, Ronit. It's a pleasure to (laughs) talk to you today. I'm so happy that we are getting this chance to talk, and this has been long in the making. (laughs) We've been connecting for a while, and I know that uh, where I edit at Citron Review, you have had some work published, and so I've been aware of you as a writer before I realized you had a book coming out, and congratulations on the publication of Places We Left Behind. Thanks so much, and I would say it's very mutual. I've been watching you from afar, and I think one of the best parts of AWP was actually seeing you in person and getting a hug. Oh, gosh, it was so great to see you. That seems so long ago. Like I, And I don't even know when I'm going to get to see you again because you know you live in Israel, which is part a giant part of your book. So can you, for people who haven't gotten a copy of your book, Places We Left Behind, can you share a bit about it? So I actually have it down to this one sentence. Places We Left Behind is a love story with a lot of conflict about home. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very good. You've got your elevator pitch. I had another interview uh, the other day and they were so concise. I thought, wow, you're really good at this. So now this is the thing though, if people haven't seen your book, it is in miniature, but can can you explain what that is? It doesn't mean that the book is tiny and you need like a magnifying glass to read it. Can you explain what that means? So it is about 13,000 words, which is very untraditional. And the chapters are more often than not just on one page. Sometimes they're not even words. They're not even, they're, sometimes there's an image. But I would say the miniature has to do with both the length of the work as a whole and with the chapters and the fact that I'm five foot barely one. And I've just <laughs> been called, te- you know, teased mercilessly my entire life about how small I am. So it worked. <laughs> it worked. I wish people would just let that stuff go, right? Like, I mean, we happen to have these bodies. I know humans were not going to do that, but we have these bodies. They carry us around, but that's all they are, right? Like they they keep us safe so we can live this life, hopefully. Okay, so did you write these shorts specifically for this memoir or did they accumulate over time? And did they any of them appear in publications, other publications first? So... I would say the main thing is, is what has come into the world in this book two days ago is not at all where I started and where I started was seven years ago with a really long, really long winded, overwritten, really boring, really conventional body of work, which was about 65,000 words. And it was trying to cover too much time. And it was just, it didn't have a, a good tight narrative arc. And it was just boring. That said, I hired an editor, a developmental editor, who took it and who gave me amazing, amazing, extraordinary feedback. And the main thing in the feedback was put it aside, put it away, let all of this sink in and come back to it later. And Mm. in that time of putting it away, I took a flash, 
I think it was called Fast Flash Class with Kathy Fish. And I took a prose poetry class. And I started to do a deep dive into flash. And I started to question what is the difference between flash and prose poetry. And I started to remember that during my MFA, my first time on campus at Vermont College of Fine Arts, I read in front of the student body and these two poet graduate assistants came up to me said, have you ever thought about you know, prose poetry? And I looked at them like, what are you saying to me? I, <laughs> I'm not a poet. So I just, I didn't know what they were saying. So it's been a journey. Um, I think it is for every writer. And so this iteration was really like in the last years of it um, where I had chopped this huge manuscript, gotten rid of all of this beginning, put it away, like buried it and started anew on my own journey, which is actually a second book coming out in a year from now called Landed, A Yogi's Memoir in Pieces and Poses. Mm -hmm. only to then be submitting that very seriously two Decembers ago and Januarys ago when a friend came to me to say, hey, do you have any um, prose, short prose that you could link together into a chat book, link thematically to enter competitions? I'm doing it. I think you should look at what you have because I think you could do it too. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I went back into the earlier part of the story and I started to excavate and I started to compress even more and I started to look at this narrative arc that was within this short, I mean, when I submitted it for publication, it was not even 10,000 words. Oh, wow. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and, I, and this was for book. This was not for chat book. This was finally mm -hmm. expressed for a book. And the funniest thing was in the, in the, yes, we'd like to offer you publication, the feedback was, if you'd like to lengthen this, we'd like to hear more of the yoga journey. And I was laughing out loud at my desk. I'm like, <laughs> you want me to write about yoga? I can write about <laughs> yoga. So, so that's where I lengthened it. And I added 4,000 words. Oh, wow. And so did you, in the intervening time, ha had you taken any of these and sought Lit Mag publication with any of them? Or are they all fresh, all the pieces in places we left behind, are they fresh to this manuscript? No. So some of it is excerpted from longer pieces. Some of, uh, much of it is completely new. Um, and some of it, a lot of it was rejected. A lot of it was mm. standalones that I just was getting a lot of rejection because it's all, a lot of it's about Israel and Judaism and it's, mm. it's a hard sell. Yeah, I know. We need to talk about that too. Um, we're going to get into that. Now, you said that your first manuscript was, uh, you used a lot of descriptions for it, but I think you said cumbersome and whatever, like all these negative thoughts about it. And I, did you, did you believe that or did someone tell you this, you, so how do you know that's true that the first book is not worthy of seeing the light? I, I sensed something that just wasn't interesting in my own mm. writing. And, and mm. I also sensed something in my own voice. I feel if I were to look back at that first manuscript, I would possibly say I sounded whiny. I, I wasn't interesting. And what happened in the, f in the process of learning to compress my prose was my prose started to pop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I started to find the heart of what I was saying in a way that I was always buried. I never knew mm. what I was doing when I was writing long. Interesting. And and your first kind of writing, when you first began writing creatively as a, I think, is it true that you began writing more as a mom? Like that's when you started creative writing or had you been writing before then? 
I was writing before, but I really became a freelance writer and a content mm-hmm. writer as a, as a young mom. And I was in the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 90s when the world of the web started <laughs> and it was all mm-hmm. these, you know, companies. Um, and I was writing almost 40 hours a week for babycenter.com, writing, editing. Oh. Yeah. 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 So then your first writing was more like for magazines and to get to, to get material to pop and attract attention. So then when you got into more literary writing, was it then longer form essays and things like when how long have you been writing in this flash this flash form? 2018 was my first class. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you really took to it. I think it's extraordinary. Me too. I really love it. And actually, it's funny because when I got my master's, I would always stay to listen to the poets read. And I thought, because hearing them read it brought poetry to life for me in a way that I didn't understand before. And I've been taking prose poem classes as well, and I really enjoy it too. So I feel like we have a little bit of overlap there. So what part of putting this book together did you find the most challenging and... I guess this is kind of like a connection question, but maybe they're very separate. And also, what is it like to share this look inside your marriage? I think I found this fun. Mm, mm-hmm. So it was in the submission process of, of submitting to chapbook competitions that I started to notice this word experimental prose. And I was wondering what that was. Mm-hmm. And so I went back into the traditional prose short manuscript and I started to play with it. And hearkening back to one of my mentors, Barbara Hurd, at my at Vermont College of Fine Arts, who said, you know, try to play on the page. She tried to teach me. She definitely did. She taught me about patterning. Um, I wrote an essay that was two long sentences in one short that was actually published on Citroen Review. I think that when I became an editor with Charlotte Hamrick, when we began the creative nonfiction together, uh, I, I think that was one of the first pieces that we published together. Yeah. Yeah. Boxed in. Yes. Thank you yeah. for that. That's really funny. <laughs> um, but at she, you know, she taught me to take an essay, a list essay of mine that was later uh, nominated for a Pushcart Prize to cut it up, each of the, the pieces, put it on my living room floor and to move the pieces around to see what spoke to each other. Like all these little things. She tried to teach me to get more nimble minded. That was one mm-hmm. of her big words. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I would say to you that this manuscript, this book is, is that. It is mm-hmm. me being as nimble minded as I've ever been, as playful as I've ever been. And I think really finding my voice. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it wasn't a challenge, it was fun. Mm, That's a wonderful experience, right? If you can say that it wasn't blood, sweat and tears. And what about the marriage part of this? Because I guess like you gave a really good, concise description of what this book is about. But maybe you can talk about the some of the, the themes that you touch on and some of what you're really chewing on here. Right. So normally, if I were to write it, I would say it's a love story with a lot of conflict, M dash, inner and personal, marital and geopolitical. Mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. home. Uh, I'm, I'm American. I met a Frenchman in the hills of Jerusalem. We were in our early 20s. I was not in Israel to stay. I stayed. I moved in two months later. It was a very fast fall, um, and I never intended to stay in Israel. I was on my way to graduate school. I stayed. We got married. We had a baby. I wasn't sure what I was going to do in this non-English-speaking country, and then we left. 
and and I'm sorry, and way back when I moved in, in my early 20s, he was, he grew up traditional, traditional Jew in Europe, which often means keeps kosher, separates milk meals from meat meals, mm. means keeps the Sabbath to a certain degree. But when he had moved to Israel, he decided to keep it at a, at a more to its word. So not driving, not spending money, not turning on electric. We didn't even mm -hmm. have electronic devices, but not turning mm -hmm. on a TV or a radio or getting into a car or spending money from Friday sundown to Sunday sundown to Saturday sundown. I'm sorry for the 24, technically 25 hours and the, the holidays, the, the main Jewish holidays. Yeah. And I was 23 and I was really enamored and I was bold and confident in many ways, but not strong enough in a relationship way to say, nope, sorry, I'm not going to do that. And mm -hmm. instead I said, I will try. And I gave in and I lost my sense of self. I lost my Jewish identity as a reform, non-believing Jew. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then we proceeded to leave Israel for two years, which turned into 16 to raise children outside of this country and to raise them in what became known as modern orthodox in America. And so we sent them to Jewish schools where half their day was learning about Jewish text and Hebrew, where they had to, the girls had to dress a certain way. My son had to wear a yarmulke on his head. And I was just uncomfortable mm -hmm. as a parent. I didn't like my kids' education. I didn't like raising them like this. Mm -hmm. And so I was, um, I was uncomfortable. It's the best way to say it. Yeah. yeah. And, and you write a lot about your husband and there's lots of images of the two of you together in, in both emotional moments and also physical moments. So how was that for your husband to be in your book? Did he, did you talk about it? How does he feel about it? So I asked permission way back in 2016 in grad school, 2015, when I started this when a mentor, Patrick Madden, was pointing out to me that my marriage should be separate from the stories I was trying to write about being in a sealed room in the Gulf War in 1991 and running for shelter in 2014, and that I should look at my marriage separately because it was interesting, complex, challenging, I used all kinds of words. And it mm. took me months to understand what he was trying to say to me. And so I asked permission of my husband. I knew that I couldn't do it otherwise. But I think that when he gave me permission in 2016, he probably didn't think it would actually become a book. I mean, <laughs> I didn't either for a really long time. So that's fair. And it was very hard for him to read at the end. He didn't mm -hmm. want to read it until the very end. I knew he had to read it before a certain point, And that was actually in December before a developmental edit in-house. Um, it was his last possible moment to make any big changes. And he led to an incredible conversation between us because he first understood that I did not portray him as a villain, which he had mm -hmm. feared. And he was able, I think, to understand when I said that we had become, that when I write like this, is like we're characters on the page. And I think he understood it because he said while he was reading, he was just wondering like how we, how they were going to make it out of this together. How, mm -hmm. how had we survived together? How had they stayed together? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's really useful because I, I appreciate that 
I appreciate knowing that it wasn't just a slam dunk for you. Sure, you know, write about me, put our marriage on the page, no problem, you know, and that you, even though once you got permission, you were still concerned or knowing that like if he had said, no, 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 no. I mean, it sounds like you probably would have respected that. Yeah. Maybe. But I mean, it would be very hard. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I would have a really hard time after putting in so much work uh like just not like pulling something and not publishing it you know especially if this is something that this is your chosen career um I think if I can just say I do feel like he said to me at one point I know you're going to do it anyway (laughs) I do feel like that was in there yeah yeah (laughs) right I mean really in a way poor poor partners of people who are writers because I mean yes and no I'm joking but it is it's like a thing to to be to have a writer as your your other right so what would you caution writers about I mean we've sort of talked about what you really enjoy about putting memoir and shorts together so so why don't you let's hit that again how about what what do you find the most appealing about it? Because we've talked about that you like it and that you found it to be really satisfying. But maybe for people who haven't tried this form, what do you find really appealing about the memoir in shorts or in miniature? So what I find appealing is is what I said, which is when you write short, I think you find the heart of what you're trying to say. I think you find your story in a way that I would go to my writing group back in New York seven years and I would often sit and say, I know that I have a story here, but I don't know what I'm saying. Six pages, seven pages, eight pages, nine pages, 10 pages, it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Sometimes three and four pages. And it was only in this incredible distillation, like this chiseling and compressing that I understood that my heart was like, maybe sometimes three words or one sentence, but but it was just like to stay like in Anne Lamott's one inch frame. What would you caution writers about when they're approaching material like this? What, what is something that maybe you, you need to be aware of when you're writing short or when you're putting together a, a bigger work? I think fun, you know, like if you're not having fun, if, it's, if it feels grueling and you used the word cumbersome earlier, if, if it feels, I mean, being lost in your own words, that happens to everybody. But if it feels like it's bringing out negative in you, so, so that's what happened to me. In the first iteration of this, in the 65,000 word, during graduate school, towards the end of graduate school, when I was rehashing the past to get this material out, I, it affected my marriage, going back mm-hmm. and rehashing all that stuff. I, I don't think I was having fun. The fun mm-hmm. came later in this form that I was working with. So I feel like figure out what form brings out a little bit of fun. There's work, but there should also be this other kind of lightness to it. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. takes a lot of iterations to find out where it is. Mm-hmm. And being open to that. Uh, you, you know, th- it's interesting that you were in this graduate program and that's where people are writing book length works or, you know, ostensibly they're doing their theses. And you were, it's sort of like you needed to do this, but ultimately this wasn't the form where your words needed to end. Like you needed a different sort of container and structure for what you needed to work on. And it can be hard when you're in a program where there is an expectation for a certain amount of words. Right. Or format. Mm-hmm. Talking seven years went by, like that's a long time. Yeah. That's a lot of, a lot of growth and change. 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. And also maritally and as a mom. Uh, so can you talk about Israel Writers Studio and let's talk about what it's like to be a Jewish writer living in Israel and the, you know, geopolitical implications of all that? Mm -hmm. So Israel Writers Studio is mine. And um, I started it when I was probably under a different name, kind of two years, three years after b arriving here in around 2013. I teach around my dining room table on COVID. During COVID, I taught on Zoom. And at this point, I'd say everything is hybrid because some people just don't want to come to the table. So I often have, I just had a workshop. I had nine at the table and one on Zoom. I mean, I think that they're missing out when they're not at the table because I serve mm. food and the whole thing. <laughs> um, I would fly to Israel for that. <laughs> I would come to that workshop for that. Anyone who knows me knows that like food is the center of my well, life. Well, if you so. know anything about Israel, there's always food on the table. So yeah. or Jews, right? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I love teaching, so it really brings out this side of me that I just like. I am a teacher, whether it's yoga or writing, and um, I found my happy place. I love. I I have two classes that I think are like the main. Uh, I just keep doing them year after year. One of them is called Just Write. It's uh, 10 weeks usually, 8 to 10, depends on my travel schedule. And it's every class is some tool, some craft tool, and then prompts. It's all generative. Everything I do is generative. And um, by the end of the, you know, the whole class, they go away with a lot of different tools in their toolbox. And then the other class is called writing our roots and I had originally been teaching it in a museum that used to be called the Museum of the Jewish Diaspora. It's been renamed and it was closed with COVID and so I was like well wait a minute I don't need the museum to teach this I can do this and so I took it home and mm. it's for a lot of it, it that's not just writers who come that's also people who are just interested in genealogy mm -hmm. um, who want to who want to write their story but they don't they don't dream of a book. Um, and so here I am in this non-English speaking country, tiny English, non-English speaking country, and there's this subset of people who one, dream of writing a book, and two, are either native English speakers or not, but they write in English, read and write in English. So I've had South Americans, I've had Europeans, I've had Israelis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had one really woman, I had one woman from Germany, I'll never forget, and she wanted to read, but she was actually writing in German, and she read her story in German to the table, and we all clapped, and we're like, <laughs> we didn't understand a word, but it was beautiful. Like, <laughs> um, so, so then what is it like for you? I mean, what, what happens when you submit work now? Do you feel self-conscious about it? Uh, you know, do you want to just, we don't need to get heavily into this, but I think it's worth talking about being yeah, an Israeli is. Jewish American writer. Yeah, it is. So my bio is born in the San Francisco Bay Area. Jennifer Lang lives in Tel Aviv. So the first thing is, is I really try not to say Israel and I say Tel Aviv because Tel Aviv is like hipster, mm -hmm. you know, food capital, absolutely mind blowing, fabulous place to visit and to live. So that's the first thing. I mean, obviously, Israel Writer Studio gives me away. I am very self-conscious. I, during the submission of my manuscript, I had one editor at a small press actually say to me without even reading my manuscript, just so you know, I'm opposed to ethnic cleansing. I couldn't even read beyond that line. So when I got the rejection later, I was like, well, that was obvious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
That's I really hard. It was hard, but here's the thing: who I ended up signing with also doesn't surprise me. I have two books with Vine Leaves Press. It's an American woman who lives in Munich, Germany, and an mm-hmm. Australian who lives in Athens, Greece, and that <laughs> is beautiful to me mm-hmm. because that's who I am in the end, and that's you know what my work is about, which is of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people can distill. It's funny because, I mean, it's not funny, and I don't mean to be too pat here, but your book, you know, the flash form, the lyric form, it can be a distillation of what we want to say. What you were working on earlier, you found to be not as interesting, and you weren't excited about what you were doing in the longer form. So you distilled your work, and it's, you know, you can't distill Israel or the climate there or the people or whatever's going on societally in any kind of way. It's really complicated. Yeah. Yes. So I write a lot about it. I would say it's definitely my muse for the good and Mm -hmm. the bad. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, you know, endless things to write about. And I would say that while I'm not a political person, it's inevitable that my writing is political. Mm -hmm. Because I've put two kids through the army. Um, I've been here, sadly, a number of times and run for shelter heard sirens mm-hmm. and run for shelter it's 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 inevitable to to have it be you know what my words it's inevitable it's part of your daily life I mean the the running for shelter the bomb sh- I mean this is something that you've experienced and very few of us have and I was born in Israel but and been back to visit but I haven't lived there at, you know for any length of time since I was four or you know three and a half so but I, I appreciate that you bring this perspective to it. And also, your your decision to stay or go is really part of your writing and your, your adult life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not that easy. None of it is simple. Right. And I also just want to say, and those sirens, they're not part of my daily life in, in a normal day. It's, it's, right, it's, right, right, it's right. the exception to the rule. Yeah. So do you want to read those excerpts we talked about? With pleasure. Yeah. So the first one's called Never Ever. When I awaken to an empty bed, I follow my nose. Odors of breakfast drift down the hall toward the galley kitchen. As batter hits butter, hissing sounds sing. Joyeux anniversaire, he says. In a fitted t-shirt and floral boxers, Philippe flips crepes single-handedly. A sight I've never seen before. No man has ever made me crepe. No Frenchman has ever made me crepe. No any nationality man has ever made me crept. Summer heat and sexual desire swarm my every cell. He tells me to sit, serves me impeccably round, thin, buttery crepe. I watch his string bean long legs cavort in the confined space, hearing my brain croon words like stay, forever, keep him, while striving to ignore the others about distance, religion, and political climate. It's not a perfect fit, and I'm old enough to know better. I <laughs> love that. Um, okay, okay, then the next, the next one is Places Left behind. behind. Places Left Behind. One night, we lie on the living room carpet, a habit we started after our first was born, and we removed our coffee table to cuddle and be closer to him on the floor. My boss called, Philippe says, reaching for my hand. We have to relocate, New York or Israel, or I'll lose my job. New York. Everyone's predicting the local dot-com bubble's going to bust, and I don't want to be unemployed. New York, I repeat, okay, as long as we buy a house. The long, miserable, depressing year it took him to find his first job in high tech was enough for me. 
I need to nest where I can manage mail, pay bills, and navigate healthcare in my mother tongue, where I can avoid the topic of suicide bombs altogether. In 2000, New York is relatively safe compared to Israel. Raising kids is hard enough. I'm overwhelmed when all three need me. I can't be a good parent unless I feel secure. I don't in Israel. Do you get it? He laces his fingers through mine. But I can't imagine leaving my parents again, I sob. I'm willing to move so you can keep your job, but I'm sick of feeling uprooted, never knowing how long we're staying. Our nonstop negotiations and mobile marriage continue. When Philippe had the jitters after our wedding a decade ago, he predicted our intractable conflict like a prophet. No matter where we reside, one of us will always rue the place we left behind. Thank you. And then the final piece uh, I thought you could read was Truth or Lie. With pleasure. Truth or Lie. I climb into bed and twine my legs around Philippe. Between the flannel sheets and his body heat, I warm up quickly. I want to sign up for a yoga workshop next weekend at Sage. A wash in sunlight, the studio is a solid 20-minute freeway ride north in Armonk, the opposite direction from Tuckahoe. Its semolina yellow walls bounce off the hardwood floors, casting light even on dark winter days. I'll be back for dinner on Friday and leave after you go to shul on Saturday. I prefer you not to drive, he says. I unwrap my legs. For the kids. Sometimes he speaks in code, in half-truths, even untruths. Surely he's more concerned about someone from our community seeing me than our children. Sometimes I speak in code, in half-truths, even untruths. Rarely do I discuss my Jewish holiday or husband with my yoga teacher world. Are you kidding me? My body temperature plummets. He suggests I sleep at the studio owner Susan's on Friday, return Saturday night. Like I can't come and go as I please? No response. Like my absence is better for the kids? Tension is so loud it rumbles in my ears. In the dimness, I think about how far I've derailed from my dreams, how long ago I lost my inner compass, and how desperate I am to find my way back. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. So what would you recommend writers who are interested in this form or in the more compressed form do to begin working that way? Take classes, learn, read, read mm -hmm. literary journals that have short form. Citroen Review is a great example of one. Brevity is a great example of one. There are many. Read poetry. I agree with you with what you said earlier. And one of my first, not my first, but one of my earlier writing teachers, Rebecca McClanahan, she's a poet before prose. Mm. And she, when she was a child, she used to memorize poems for fun. <laughs> and she starts every class by reciting a poem. And it really, really affected me. And so when I start class, I do, I do that. Mm -hmm. I think that we learn a tremendous amount from the sparsity of poetry. We, mm -hmm. we learn that every word counts in poetry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that even in my regular prose writing, my regular essay writing, these days I'm paying more attention on the word level. I have a lot further to go, but the poetry classes I've taken and the poetry I've written has really shown me that. And I heard that for so many years, especially when I was in my master's program, that the poets who then wrote memoirs or novels, you could really tell, on the line level, on the word level, 
And I do think it really is an incredible thing. And I never did much poetry or appreciated it when I was growing up. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. So what books do you go to? And I know your memoir is a different type of memoir, but what are some books you'd like to suggest listeners read? So the first that I'd recommend is actually a poet who wrote a memoir just this past year. You Could Make This Place Beautiful, Maggie Smith. Beautiful. Yes, who was a guest on our show as well, a guest on this show. Go ahead. The most gorgeous, gorgeous prose. I mean, I wanted to just take a bath in it. Um, Some of the books that I would say that were played a big part of what got me to where I am, one of the biggest is, is an illustrated memoir called Belonging by Nora Krug, a German writer who wrote in English. She lives in New York. And it is the most stunning book I've ever set my eyes on. Every page is different. You think it's just for you, that you're the only one who has this book. And I remember hearing her, I think in 2018, in New York, thinking, I want to do something like that. And I don't have an artistic bone in my body, so... You know, how could you say that? Because I don't. Because what I did is all with with the confines of word. I know, but, but some, some people, people think writers are artists. Well, yeah, I'll get there one day, maybe. <laughs> I, I don't consider myself an artist. <laughs> That's a different conversation. Uh-huh. And is there anything else? Um, Heating and cooling was another one I loved. Also a poet, Beth Ann Fennelly, actually. So I'm, I've got one graphic memoir, illustrated memoir, one and two poets who wrote what, Heating and Cooling is 52 micro essays, and You Can Make This Place Beautiful is a book in prose, but that just is, you know, off the charts, beautiful, exceptional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you. I love that. Uh, this is a nice range, which I don't always get as recommendations, so this is exciting. And um, what last advice would you like to leave writers working on their memoirs with keep going it's perseverance one of my i went to the iowa summer writers festival in i don't know what year and timothy bascom was my teacher and i will never forget him saying those who persevere are the ones who will end up writing mm-hmm. that's it mm-hmm. perseverance mm-hmm. persistence call it what you want it's that thank you and where can people find you and your book you can find me on Facebook at Jennifer Friedman Lang. That's my maiden name so that childhood friends could find me, and it's worked, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. You can find me at, on Instagram. And so both Facebook and Instagram, it's Jen Lang Writes. Great. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I really, really enjoyed it. It was phenomenal, Roni. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.